Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome, everybody, and thanks for joining us with Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. I'm uh, here with uh, a whole room full of people and a guy that's in remote, so we're really excited about being able to do this. So I'm not going to waste any time talking. I want to introduce the people that are in the room with us. First off, I'd like to introduce Regina Milkovich. She's uh, the top female shooter on the PRS circuit, and uh, actually, she um, her major sponsor is Timony, but uh, McMillan Fiberglass Stocks has been a sponsor of hers for a couple of years now. Hi, Regina. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. Good. Thanks for being on. Uh, next, I want to introduce uh, Buzz Miller. He's uh, with Sync Development Solutions, and Buzz and I have been working together for about nine months now, trying to redesign our 50 cal semi-automatic so that we can make with small fewer pieces lighter just make a better product out of it and so we can finally get it to market so Buzz, thanks for being with us hey kelly thanks for having me yeah glad to have you on and last but not least we're going to have david tubb on uh, i know i don't have to introduce him to anybody who knows anything at all about shooting has heard of david tubb david thanks for being with us kelly thank you absolutely yeah, I'm excited to get uh, to catch up with you, and I think uh, we'll start with you. And um, what I'm going to ask is that let's just make this kind of a, a casual conversation between the four of us. If if you have any questions of Buzz or Regina, feel free to ask them. If you have any questions of David, you guys just jump right in. But this is David's time to talk about David Tubb and, and what he's been doing. Now, normally I start off by asking uh, my guest to give us a little history and talk some about your accomplishments. But if I asked you to do that, we'd be here for an hour and you wouldn't get to finish. So uh, do me a favor, just yeah. give an overall view of what you've been able to accomplish in the firearms industry and the shooting sports. You know, I, I, I grew up, my dad, like came back from war two a shooter wanted to shoot. And uh, so he got us started. So we started at a young age and so consequently, after small bore and the college stuff and shooting high power rifle, you know, I managed to, to win a lot of various national championships in a bunch of disciplines like silhouette or high power rifle or long range and all of the subcategories and stuff that are involved there. So, and, uh, you know, from that, obviously, I had a, had a passion for this, as you, as Kelly knows, you know, and. It's, you know, at this point in time, then, you know, I'm 63 years old now and I still compete some, but, uh, you know, my, mine kind of evolved because I get to go to do something I like to do every day, which is the best job in the world, just like Kelly does, you know, so it's good. So anyway, uh, all in all, I have, I have, uh, I think if you, you know, Lone Zwigger, God rest his soul, uh, won a whole bunch of matches at Camp Perry and he was a fantastic shooter small board, but he and I never shot against each other very much, but I, I, I'm not saying I'm on his level, but I was, I'm approaching. Well, I tell you what, David, you, you didn't mention maybe the one thing that I think if I were you, I would be the most proud of. 
and that sportsman team challenge because right. all of the other stuff that you mentioned was right in your wheelhouse with with bolt action rifles uh, shooting a rifle but with sportsman team challenge you took on shooting shotgun and pistol which were not your forte and you were what four five-time champion something yeah. like that yeah that's right you know we shot a dozen so years various people mm -hmm. like Koenig and Plaxco and Enos and Lethem and then you know and, and it's it's just a dire different sport let's put that away as you know you shot some of it but you know in the end they figured out I could shoot a pistol as good as those guys I just didn't have gun handling skills I couldn't reload and draw fast you know and then we ended up shooting shotgun and and when we'd go practice, because we, you know, various people like Sierra or or uh, EAA or there was another one. Anyway, they sponsored us. Dylan sponsored us one day, and we'd go shoot. And I'd shoot thirty thousand shotgun shells a year. Well, guess what? I got to be a darn good <laughs> shotgun shooter. And not only that, but all these people that we were shooting with, you had shotgun shooters there. So I got lessons from everybody, you know, on how to do it. And, uh, well, yeah, we need a competition like that now at the long range. You know, you shoot it. <laughs> exactly. You well, a long way away and you shoot something flying across. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I've talked to uh, Dan Brozovich and uh, Jeff Brozovich. What they want to do at their long range match, the ELR match, is in between because they've they've come up with this idea that in order to make it more fair for everybody, you you can't shoot more than every four hours. And I know I'm not saying that the best way it could be said, but basically they don't want you to retry to set a record within four hours so that you're not, you know, ganging up on the conditions, I guess. But what they want to do is they want to set up a small bore ELR course so that while you're waiting for your next series of ELR, uh, you know, centerfire uh, to take place, you can shoot small bore, which I think is a, a tremendous idea. Give people something to do in between that four hours where ordinarily they'd just be talking. No, you're right. Some, something like that or two, two, threes, anything, something inside a thousand yards, you know, that they're sure. archers. Yeah. That's not a bad plan. Because the idea is, you, as you said, is to break it up so that when you attempt your next set of targets, that you don't have the same conditions that you did four hours earlier. So it's it's uh you you have to be cunning or, and uh and, you know when you're when you're trying to pick out how much wind to hold and how much the temperature changed and the bullet flight is uh you know not what it used to be four hours earlier. Exactly, you know you talked about um, your passion and your drive, but there's also one thing that I know about you. And our relationship started many years ago. You you have a passion and a drive to be a businessman, an entrepreneur, because your family's been successful in the oil business and in mm -hmm. uh, steel pipes and, and that right. stuff. But you've always tried to see how you could kind of mold the firearms and the uh, industry into a business that would work for you. And not only did you come up with an idea for a, a brand new design on a bolt action rifle that you worked with my brother on, but right. all along the way, you've been trying to make better triggers, make better uh, bipods. Why don't you talk about what David Tubb does now in relationship to the industry? You know, we, we well, thank you. We, you know, we make about, we make some 
proprietary about 75 SKUs products that are that are very unique uh, to the industry. What one being a flat wire buffer spring in an AR-15, it's a fabulous product. Uh, the other one is the uh, aluminum oxide impregnated bullets that we sell in kits that you could call a sandpaper bullet. And why do you need a sandpaper bullet? Because you want to finish the inside of your rifle barrel. Uh, you know, and, I, and, and I'll come up with two or three new products every year. But then again, I'll throw one or two away every year because I can't always pick winners every time. So, And to that end, you know, the, the rifle... It, more of a, a, a slimmer path on a rifle, bipod, trigger, so on, which is, is they're all very, very, I try to do them where there, there are no compromises on any of this stuff. It's the best you can get. And to me, it, uh, it, it in my particular situation, as you're, if it's the best, that's what I want. I don't care if it's a couple bucks more, okay? That's yeah, fine. and I think that that's something that's been a part of your drive is that you're willing to say, okay, yeah, if I shoot 30,000 rounds a year, that's going to get me so far. But if I have one subpar piece of equipment, that's going to really set me back. And so all of that practice isn't going to be as valuable as it could be if I had every piece of equipment as good as I can possibly get it. And I think that that's, that's a great way to approach a sport. What I like to say is, and, and, I, and I do this, I did it with my woodworking shop. I went out and bought the very best equipment I could buy in woodworking because one, I'm not a woodworker. Two, I've never had any experience with it. So I figured if I was going to be successful at building furniture or making anything, the chances that I could do it well would be much more enhanced with having the best equipment I could buy and the right kind of equipment for the job. So that's how I approached it. That's a very good plan. That, that would be a, uh, the, the best way to get to the front basically you know it's the leading edge or the bleeding edge sometimes but uh you know that's that's what you're after that's what you attempted and i'm sure you were quite successful at it one of the things that we do in the fiberglass stock company is is we're constantly trying to come up with the best fiberglass stocks that we can but we don't always get it right the first time and i unfortunately i had a little setback in f class open i made some uh stocks that that i call the kestro z rail that extended the, the fore end of the stock and dropped the, the center of gravity down to where the, the rest was just below the barrel, as close as we could get to the center line of bore. The problem is, is that I didn't communicate with my employees very well how these particular stocks needed to be made. And when we got the first four or five out to a, a team that I'm sponsoring for the testing, the first thing they did was they set them on the rest and said, oh, this sags about 35, 40,000. And so I got with my people and I said, why is this so flexible? And, and come to find out, I had anticipated them being made with carbon fiber and they didn't get any carbon fiber in them for whatever reason. And so I, oh, darn. Hey, guys, don't bother, you know, bedding those things or anything. Send them back and let me, let me get you some that are made the way they're supposed to be made. But you mentioned that, you know, you can't get it right every time. And as businessmen and entrepreneurs, we try our very best to make the very best products that we can. And of course, I believe, and I know you do too, that, that customer service is every bit of that. Now, you get to test everything that you, you make. 
and you're the one that is the ultimate authority on whether this is actually an improvement over what's available or if it's not. And if it's not, you're not going to use it, which makes it difficult for you to sell. And other people just aren't going to buy it. They're going to use what's best. And that's, and I, I know you've had that issue. And uh, so how much time do you put into the uh, development and coming up with a product and testing before you actually go to market with it? Well, you know, let's just take the, the new Tub Gun, which was an offshoot of the Tub 2000 that we were all involved with. I, I spent about three years doing developmental work and or shooting three different prototypes uh, to come up with it because, you know, you make a whole bunch of changes because it's been, you know, 15, 17 years before you, since the last rifle you did. And you go through that and you, you knock some out, you weed some out, you add a couple more. And, uh, you know, I'm obviously I, I, I like great minds and I'm happy to, to hit, listen to other people's ideas. And I do, I have partners in some of my stuff. And so consequently, you know, they, they may be as an ingenious about it as I am. And so the, the more minds that are involved with a project, the better. And of course, consequently, you know, like with this one, it's got 40 or 50,000 rounds down range and it's got three different prototypes before we went to market and, and and we still have a small hiccup or two, but nothing that's insurmountable, you know, to make to, to go into production, basically. So and, I see and, that. Anyway, it just takes a lot of time, though. You're right. Uh, hours on hours, you know. I see you've got one on a tripod behind you. You want to talk about it? Let, I mean, tell us what's new, uh, how this gun works and why it's different. Right. Well, you know, you and I agree that we don't like chassis stocks because they induce you know, tensions and torques and stuff. If you take a rifle, if you look at all the best bench press shooters, most of them, they glued their actions in their stock. So it's stress-free. And so consequently, on the rifles that I do, it's an integrated assembly. That means that the, the receiver doesn't require a stock or action screws. And so it's also sitting there basically stress-free. No matter what other... Uh, accuracy inducing things you do you've got you started with something that was stress-free and so consequently from there you, you look back at all the others and the, and the guard screws and and that's why they used to bed guns well now they don't even bed them anymore they just bolt them together and so uh, you know a a uh, a steel vibration like from your firing pin falling it, it travels through the entire receiver or or the barrel let's say at about 20,000 feet per second much faster than rifle bullet exits and so consequently when when it's not the same every time as i.e stress is induced into the the receiver let's say then it's probably not going to shoot as good so so to that end i mean the a few things here is this the bipod on this one is is asymmetrical or non-symmetrical most people take a bipod and they see they they see it where it's where it's this is of course in a in a symmetrical manner. But this one's able to go and move the legs kinda like a hip joint. If you put one leg in the front and one leg to the rear, up and down, one of the aspects, the, the four end tube on this one is a round Picatinny rail four end tube. I'm not planning to shoot a scope off of it, but if I was gonna put a, a flashlight off of it or a thermal or a laser rangefinder, it repeats good enough to do that. And yet it doesn't chew your hand up. Uh, 
And of course, the you know the idea behind this rifle is it uses an integral uh, a, a barrel extension, and uh, essentially you just trade the barrels out. So you can take this rifle and you could shoot it in a six XE, one of my favorite cartridges, or you could turn around and you could shoot it in a three three eight Lapua in about a matter of about five or ten minutes. And if you had zeros from the time before, it's going to be within a click every time uh, of repetition, even with iron sights. And uh, so, and not to mention the folding stock and the, our trigger that we have in there. And we have duo springs, one counterclockwise and one clockwise in the firing pin. So when the firing pin falls, there's no radial biasing. It, we've gone to the, what you should say, the nth degree to make this, where this rifle shoots. And obviously, you've seen what it can do. So Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you, you talk about stuff that, you know, for the, the average shooter, uh, even the average good shooter, competitive shooter, they couldn't, they couldn't notice any of this stuff. But somebody who puts 30,000 rounds a year or more through a gun, you can tell that the changes that you've made either work or they don't work. And if, you, if they don't work, you're not going to waste your time and money. Um, one thing that you talked about, you said you're not going to put a scope on this. So, so this is still a, a long-range, high-power gun. That's what it was designed for. No, you can, you can shoot it with iron sights, absolutely. Mm -hmm. you know, most of the people are going to shoot a scope. But, uh, and anybody who knows what iron sights are, you know, peep sights, of course, you've got a front sight hanging out on the end. And so, consequently, uh, you've got a rear sight that you adjust and you look through and center up the circles around the, all around the black bull. And it works very well for that. I really didn't market it for that direction because the original Tub 2000 gun that Rock and I worked on, that was more toward the high-power rifle market. Um, but this one's more of a hunting rifle, long-range rifle, PRS rifle. Someone who's a serious shooter and who never wants to be without their rifle because this integral assembly never leaves. You send the barrel extension off to the gunsmith, to like the Krieger or Bartlett or and a barrel shows back up at your doorstep in the configuration and the length and the caliber you want. And so... You, you you can really you can shoot that one rifle from now on. You could have five or ten barrels. You know, I want to talk to you about something. A guy came to me the last two years in a row at the shot show and and tried to sell me on a a process by where he was actually chambering a, a barrel separate from the barrel and from the receiver, and somehow. He thought that that was a good idea, but I can't for the life of me understand why that would be a good idea. Do you understand? Have you seen that? And do you understand what that is? I, I've seen that. Right. And, and so your chamber is, is obviously you've got another set of threads or interconnecting uh, junctions or, or, or uh, yeah, junctures. And I don't know you, if you can't line the rifle barrel up perfectly, and it's very hard to do that. And of course, you throwed it, and to change the barrel, this this is such a much easier system. An integral next, and and, and a and not integral, but a, a barrel extension that's basically screwed on to the to the uh, to your rifle barrel is a much better plan because everything's already been lined up. And of course, guess what? The chamber got to be put into the rifle barrel. So now, hopefully, depending on what technique you use, because there are a bunch of them, it's all lined up, and. Uh, you know, and it doesn't take any more time to probably, in my opinion, it doesn't take any more time to do the chambering and the headspace and so on and so forth than it does to to thread this up, or very little more time, like like this fellow's do it. 
with his uh, barrel that's completely separate from his chamber. Okay, was by any chance the rifle that we're talking about, was has that had any particular accomplishments that you want to talk about? The, the tub gun here? Uh-huh. Well, you know, we, were, we, we, we went to the uh, shot, SHOT Show, and just prior to that, they had the Extreme Long Range World Record Attempt, and which is three cold bore shots, uh, so there's no ciders. And so I took my daughter and my son-in-law with me, and we each had a tub gun and a three seventy-five cartridge. And we each got to shoot. And Nate, who, uh, who who's uh, he's in the Navy, of course, uh, he hit all of his in the morning. Was when the conditions were very good, and a little bit more than a mile. Nobody else cleared fifteen hundred yards. Uh, with three consecutive hits, that's what you. That's the parameters in order to to get a a score that's uh, that's uh, you know going to be considered. And then you had to wait the four hours. And it was that was kind of interesting visiting with everybody. You and I had a nice visit. Uh, and then we shot again in the afternoon, and it was, conditions were completely different. Winds blowing, mirage is running, temperatures up, and so somewhere there we. We shot him again at that 2,011 yards, and he hit the target all three times, and nobody once again cleared 1,500. Yeah, let's not downplay how great an accomplishment that was. There were only three people to get three hits on a target at any range. Both of the other two were both at 1,500, and he was the only guy to clean all three shots at two different distances um, I think the first one was 17-something, and the, and the last one was 2,011 yards. I think that's the official record. Yes, sir. That, that's fabulous. I mean, I, I think everybody ought to know. There were 23 shooters there, and only three could get three shots on a – everyone says, oh, that's easy. I do that all the time. But when you get them down on the line and the pressure's on, it, it just doesn't happen that often. Well, the thing is, 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 is he, took the, he took the flukiness out of it, let's say, because not only did it once, he did it twice. That's right, exactly. And that, that shows you because, you know, if we'd had another four hours, there's another target on downrange, you know, that 2200 or something. You know, I watched his group, and it would have fit on that target at the next distance. So, of course, you know, as you get out there, a three-foot square plate looks like it's a freight train, you know, or a side of a barn sort of deal. And it gets a lot smaller, a lot quicker. as you. Yes, it does. Hey, David, I know I asked you if you wanted to stick around with us for uh, the rest of the show. You're more than welcome to hang out and and contribute. Um, But we're going to take a commercial break in a a few seconds here. Uh, Are we going to see you when we come back? Sure, I'll, I'll hang around, Kelly. Okay, great. Thanks, David. I appreciate that. Okay, I want to um, ask all of our listeners and viewers to stick around, watch our new Macmillan ELRHQ.com commercial, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Take a look at the 
Hi, welcome to ELRHQ.com. I'm Ian Clem, member of the three-time World Championship U.S. Rifle Team, and this year's FDR National Champion. What I'd like to talk to you about today is some of the equipment I use, and we're going to take a look at the Phoenix Precision Bipod. So this is a pretty typical bipod used by a lot of championship FTR shooters, and what it offers is a scissor-style trellis adjustment. Uh, so to adjust this, it's a single point of adjustment in terms of a captain's wheel in the center. You can raise and lower, and it has articulated feet on either end, and that's important for tracking well over uh, an angled surface, somewhat uneven surface. Last but not least, it comes with cant adjustment. So no matter the firing point you're assigned, you can always eliminate that cant and track true. Another great feature about the Phoenix Precision Bipod is that it attaches via a universal 1913mm spec Picatinny rail section, which it comes with, for all your long range shooting needs. Check out ELRHQ.com. One stop shopping for champion vetted gear. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Your internet flagship station for sports. Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Hi, welcome back, everyone. Thanks for sticking around with us through that commercial. Uh, hope you enjoyed that uh, ELRHQ commercial. Uh, just wanted to make a, a quick point. You guys couldn't see it on the radio. But uh, it's a really cool bipod. David gave it its blessing, so I'm really happy about that. Um, we're going to talk with Regina now, uh, going to get her into this conversation. But first, um, I understand that, uh, Regina, you and David have a, a relationship. You want to talk about that? We do, actually. Um, I prefer his bullets over every other bullet on the market. I've tried a few other ones and always end up back with the D-Tacs. So um, David was kind enough to sponsor me with as a bullet sponsor. So um, so shoot for him. And Micah at his shop, he's an awesome young man. I've had the opportunity to shoot with him at a couple of matches now. He usually beats all the much more senior people on the long range. You know, that's awesome. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of that, though I've seen your jersey a number of times and we've, I, we've been we've had a relationship, a sponsor relationship for a long time. So, but it's really good to see people in the industry who 
really are working hard to sponsor shooters, sponsor events. David, thanks for being involved in, in the shooting sports. I know well, it's been your life for a long time. Sure, thank you. Yeah, well, Regina's a, a, a very, very good example of someone who puts in a lot of work, hard, you know, and she sees, gets results from it. That's the idea. It's, uh, it's obviously, it's one of her loves. For sure. So take just a couple of minutes, Regina, let us know who you are, where you came from, where you grew up, how you got involved in shooting and, and what are some of your accomplishments? Um, I started shooting in 2009. My first big match was in 2010. I was second from last at that match and gave me a lot of motivation to do better. So I started practicing and then practicing some more and practicing some more, tried a bunch of different calibers and ended up with a 6XC after reading about Mr. Tubb. Um, went straight to the DTACs, drank some Kool-Aid about some other bullets, tried those that didn't work as well, went right back to the DTACs. Um, in 2016, I became the first female to win an overall at a Precision Rifle Series match. I've had a bunch of first places locally, a um, bunch of top 10 finishes, top 20 finishes. I'm still the highest ranked female in the Precision Rifle Series and the National Rifle League. Um, I'm hoping to repeat that with both of those competitive series this season as well. Um, I think my first NRL match will be the Owens Armory one at Big Sandy. I'm currently sitting in third overall in the PRS, but it's still early. Only a handful of people have three matches under their belt. So most recently I was sixth place at the Lone Star Challenge and ninth at the Accuracy International competition at Corn, Florida. So got some nice trophies from those. Wow. You know, David said you're willing to put in a lot of work, and, and I know you are. How many matches are you going to shoot this year? I'm probably, matches I'm going to shoot this year, I think I'm looking at about 18 or 19 now. Um, a lot. I have three scheduled just for April. So, it's Yeah, nice. it's nice that you've got good sponsors. Yes. <laughs> um, what attracted you to shooting? I mean, it's not necessarily known as a woman's sport, though it is one of the few sports where women can compete side by side with men and win. Mm -hmm. it, there is no, you know, stronger or weaker sex in this game. It's all about, you know, control. I've, I watched a bunch of three gun and pistol matches and it was really fast and I was extremely inexperienced with firearms. I was afraid of all of the levers and safeties and I watched a bolt gun match and all of the people were very welcoming, um, answered all my questions because I didn't know what I was doing, didn't make fun of me for being left-handed um, yet. And I, I thought it looked like a lot of fun. I couldn't believe people were hitting targets so far away and at the time I think it was 400 yards. So... Now I don't even worry about wind at 400 yards, but I remember being really nervous about that stuff in the beginning. And I like that there weren't any, I, did, I was, didn't feel like I was handicapped. So, You know, you mentioned, you know, shooting at 400 yards and that being a long ways. Now almost every match has at least an 1,000-yard target, and I think uh, the last Owens match had a 1,200-yard target. So they're expanding the distances in PRS, just like we are in ELR and everything else that we're doing. Mm -hmm. They are. Um, some of the ELR matches, I'm still a little intimidated by those, but eventually I'll 
just go and shoot one of those because they look like a lot of fun. And being able to pat yourself on the back for hitting something past a mile would be really nice. I've gotten really close to a mile with my six, but not quite there. You know, that's a real challenge for a six millimeter bullet. Once you get mm-hmm. out there past 15 or 1800 yards, it's difficult to see any impact if you, if you can to make the adjustments. And, and we know in ELR, if you can't see an impact at two miles, you can't make an adjustment because you have no idea where the bullet went. So that's a big part of it. Um, David, I know you've, you've shot a lot of long range stuff in an unconven- uh, unconventional way. Why don't you talk about how you've taken those long trips to, to South Africa to practice long range? Well, you know, my, my old college roommate, Robert Massey, he's a, uh, he wears blue overalls. That's how you know Rob. You know? I know him. And uh, Rob, Rob shot with me for years when I shot silhouette. You need a spotter and a shooter, and we spotted for each other and shot for each other, or you know, but took turns doing that. And uh, so we go baboon hunting every year in South Africa, where there's a bunch of farmers up and down for a hundred, hundred, hundred fifty mountain, hundred fifty kilometers of of these mountains where they grow fruit and. And, of course, you get all kinds of half or two-thirds of your shots have slope angle in them, which most shooters don't have any of that uh, in their competitions uh, or enough to make any difference. And, you know, and these baboons, they're, they're, they're smarter than humans. And so they're, they're very cunning. You know, don't wear camouflage. You, you, if you want to – because they, they recognize pickup colors, you know, and uh, – and camouflage, you wear something blue because that's what everybody who rides around in the back of the buckies, they call them the pickups, wears. Because they're, you know, and thought about painting my face for a while, you know, but anyway, <laughs> good, bad, or different. Uh, it's, it's a challenge. You don't have any time to shoot at an angle. You've got to call the wind. Every shot's a new shot. It's really ER on steroids, per se, with angles. And uh, so when Rob and I, we videoed some of it, there's some of it on YouTube, and you know, there's people that don't like baboons being shot, but the farmers are so happy because it's not if the baboon has broken into something, it's, you know, it's going to, and how many times have they been there and destroyed something? Everybody everybody hates them. Right. Uh, they're a real a nuisance. Liberal. One time on the airplane over, we talk about where we're doing. So I had this gal, you could tell she was had liberal leaning tendencies. And she goes, well, one of them bit my sister. You just kill them all, will you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that made it okay for me. Um, I want to ask Regina. I know you've got a, a main sponsor, Timney Triggers, and I know you really like Timney Triggers. So let's talk about Timney, uh, talk about why their triggers are good, which one you use, and give us a little sense of, of how your relationship with Timney got started. I've shot for Timney since 2011. Um, My first actual custom trigger was a Timney after having a Remington. And I really liked being able to tune it and have it be a lot lighter than the stock Remington triggers are. Um, The Calvin Elites, when they finally came out with the left-hand ones of those, I switched to those right away. Um, Had those set at a pound and a half. Now I'm running about 12 ounces. And the flat triggers... I decided I like them more than the curve triggers because I can hit the same spot every time. I can follow the trigger guard back to the trigger and hit the same exact spot. So it was repeatable for me rather than the curve trigger. Um, I I really like them. Um, that's probably the best 
way to explain it. The guys over there at the shop will tune it to whatever poundage I want. Uh, Tim tried to adjust them a couple times for me. Apparently there's a little bit more to tuning a trigger than he thought that there was. <laughs> so now I have Calvin tune them for me. Well, I know that um, you have a particular technique that you use with your trigger, which is different because we've actually had to adjust our stocks for you so that you can get that finger directly 90 degrees from the trigger so that you can pull it straight back. Now, not everybody's that particular about how their trigger set up, but this with the flat trigger, that helps you be consistent with that. Is that right? It does. Yeah. I usually build out the palm swell on my stocks about three quarter inch. So they're just a little bit longer. So my finger is forward, my whole hand's forward more. I'm not tensing up my hand at all. It's just using my trigger finger. Everything else can stay relaxed. And with that lighter weightage on it, being at 12 ounces um, and following that trigger guard back, it's more comfortable for me and more consistent and repeatable, which with precision rifle, so many things are unpredictable with wind calls and um, mirage, being able to see your target correctly, having things that are repeatable help with the fundamentals. Hey, David, I have a question from you on Facebook from uh, Dakota Murphy. Uh, yep. We talked about the 6XE. Do you have any intentions on getting into the larger solid bullets for ELR? I have no idea. You know, Warner and uh, and uh, Cutting Edge, they, they uh, at this point in time, they're doing a pretty good job, Danny Schmidtko. So right. I, I can't tell you. Let's put that away. Uh, you know, the, the thing about going into the solid bullets, pretty simple to do if you've got a program and a CAD machine you just got to buy the material and you can start spitting bullets out do they shoot though you know Um, and as we'll get back to what you said earlier can you do it any better they're doing a pretty good job they're on the cutting edge of those solid and and we know for a fact one of the better bullet makers in in the world burger they're not getting into solid bullets because they're struggling to keep up with what they do and how they do it with the demand for some of the larger bullets in in a jacketed bullet. So yeah, um, I would, I would have to make a a long and hard decision as to whether I wanted to get into that market right now, knowing what the, what the small demand is right now. And now of course it's going to grow, but you know, that, that would be a decision to be tough for me to make too. Mm -hmm. Nope. nope, you're right. So, you know, from my perspective, yeah, adding the ability to shoot stuff over a ballistic system, an Ailer 88, capture the data, time of flight, you know, you you learn things and, and they make a really, really good bullet. The only thing they need to do with something that I have come up with, it's a little ring around the nose of the bullet. Toward the end, we call it a nose ring. And let's just imagine that you had a plastic tip bullet and you know there's a junction between the plastic tip and the regular bullet, well, that little depression creates a boundary layer drag function. And I IP'd that, I filed on that some time back. And so in the near future, you'll probably see a turn solid bullet that doesn't have a plastic tip, maybe have a little ring around the front of it, and a production bullet like a DTAC 115 may have that because what does it do? It uniforms your drag, so you shoot better groups at distance. That's interesting. Uh, I just want to make a quick comment. I knew you had had lots of experience with filing patents. I've had a few myself. I'm just, it's such a pain in the butt. I'm just filling out the paperwork for a patent on adjustable comb riser on an injection molded plastic stock. I, I just, 
those are the kind of things I wish I just had someone I could turn it all over to it and tell them, just bring me the paperwork and tell me where to sign. I wish I could do that because there's a lot involved. Well, uh, as you know, a patent's only worth what you're willing to spend to defend. That's exactly right. And it's also, it's only as good as the patent is, is how the patent is written as well. That's exactly right. And uh, you learn as you go. You know, your first one is your first patent is never going to be as encompassing or as good as your fifth or seventh or tenth one. You know, right. you, get smart, you get a little smarter quicker. You know, it's kind of like the Tub 2000 gun. We should have done some IP on that back when Rock and I did it. You know, yep, should have. We'd be smiling better. There wouldn't be any Ruger <laughs> PRS or whatever that, that thing is. It, right. it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be existing. You know. Exactly. But you know, I think that Rock takes a lot of pride in the fact, and I know that you should, is that people have tried to duplicate this because it's a really good system. And I know financially it doesn't necessarily make you feel any better to know Ruger selling a bunch of those guns. But the <laughs> fact that, hey, they copied you, that's got to mean something to you. Well, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, if you turn that back around, it's kind of like the 6-5 Creedmoor. The 6-5 Creedmoor mm-hmm. came to life when the Creedmoor bunch stayed next to the Hornaday bunch at Camp Perry, Ohio in the condos. And guess what they had? They had a 6XE cartridge and they were, Dennis DeMille was walking around with it. And that's where the 6.5, not to mention the fact that I'd already sent them drawings for the 6XE to see if Hornaday would make the brass and I ended up not using them. Mm-hmm. So, but that's where the 6.5 Creedmoor came from. Imagine that. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> I want to get back to Regina for a minute. You've got a trigger with you. You, you want to, uh, did we get, did we grab you a trigger out? No? We didn't get it from stock. It wasn't the same one. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, why don't we take a minute and I'm going to get uh, in a conversation with Buzz. Why don't you get over by your rifle and then you can kind of go over your rifle and, and let everybody know what it is that you're shooting. Uh, so I want to bring Buzz Miller in. Buzz, uh, I've had a great relationship with you and uh, really enjoy working with you. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your history and, and how we got together? Sure. So my history is, is as you know, product development. Um, I'm pretty much the, the nerd that sits behind the computer and tries to help bring cool products to market. You know, you guys, uh, everybody out there has wonderful ideas. And, and David, you've even mentioned, um, you know, some of your trials and tribulations. And I don't think there's quite the appreciation for what really goes into bringing a product to market. You know, you mentioned, David, talking about having you know, having worked on, on your previous gun for a number of years, you've got tons of experience on that. Fast forward a few years, and now you're developing another gun, and yet it still takes, you know, years of shooting, years of testing, years of development, because ultimately you're in a pursuit of perfection, right? And, and I think, you know, that goes throughout our industry. I mean, you know, we're all trying to make better products, ultimately, and, and serve our customers what they want. But I don't think the customers really have insight into what goes into doing so. And so, you know, I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm just another one of you guys where I've spent the last ten years or so of my life, um, you know, learning the ropes, kind of learning about products, learning about development, design, um, going through a lot of these hurdles that ultimately get products to market. You know, there's, there's always something. Just like you said, David, there's always something that comes up. And being able to deal with it and manage it uh, is, is really crucial for, for handling, you know, bad customer experiences. Heaven forbid we have one. And so, you know, I spent, um, 
I spent a couple of years at FN, uh, uh, primarily doing handgun development there with those guys. And, you know, you learn a lot about uh, more high volume stuff uh, when you're dealing with things like that. But FN is also uh, a company that absolutely does not, um, you know, skimp on quality, you know, and, and, and the uh, investment that they put into understanding their own products is incredible. And I would say, you know, one of the, one of the leading uh, companies in the industry that really puts the engineers um, in charge with understanding their products the way they do. Um, so yeah, I spent a, you know, like I said, a number of years with FN. I did do a, a short stint down in Taurus, um, which, you know, that sounds like a interesting swing and it was a very interesting swing, but, but there were things to learn down there as well, uh, believe it or not. And so, Spent a few years doing some doing some development down there. Um, you know, got a couple of successful products on the right track, and now uh, I'm in a position where I'm basically uh, uh, doing product development consulting for guys like yourself, Kelly. Where you know, uh, just like you're mentioning with the IP stuff, where you wish you had somebody you could hand things off to that they could run with it, and you know. Uh, uh, what you bring to the table kind of matches perfectly with what I bring to the table. And so it's a great partnership for us to just carry on and run with, um, you know, run with this product development that you got going. Well, thanks for sharing that. We're going to step away. <laughs> we're going to step away from this conversation for just a minute. Uh, Regina set up and we're going to give her a few minutes to talk about her rifle, what she's shooting, how it's set up and uh, kind of give us an overview of what a PSR rifle is all about. Regina. All right. So this is the rifle I've taken to the last couple of competitions, actually. Um, it's a McMillan KMW combination stock. Um, I have a Timney trigger, Timney flat trigger in there, set at 12 ounces. This one has a defiance action of Vortex Razor Gen 2. And on the side, you'll notice I've got a two-round holder there. So I have my little backup 6XC rounds for just in case something happens or I drop a magazine and one falls out. On the other side, I have uh, what's called a Python. It's made by a friend of mine named Marcus Blanchard. So I have my dope cards in there. Um, they slide in and out. We made these on business cards. So they list the target designator, distance, your elevation, and two wind calls. And, and here is a a plugger that is made from a friend of ours. And it's basically an empty chamber indicator. So looks like that and slides right in. Um, pretty handy, especially for the matches where it's required that you have an empty chamber indicator. It keeps a lot of the debris out of it. Um, other gear that I use are my WeBad bags. This one's a mini fortune cookie. It's a heavy weight, about three pounds. Comes in really handy as a rear bag as well as using it on props that are at odd angles. And I've got a pump pillow, which is the second most used bag that I have. A scope cover that is, I think this one's called a rifle caddy. So you can put it, fits all the way over my full size scope with the sunshade on it, latches underneath. So I could carry it, but we don't like to carry stuff like suitcases. So either up or down, but keeps all the debris out. A bungee sling. Just a regular carbine sling. Nothing fancy. Seems to work the best for me. But that's the Calvin Elite that I have another Calvin Elite flat. Left-handed because I'm special like that. So that's it. Um, the muzzle brake on the end is a Spartan Precision muzzle brake. He's also my, uh, my gunsmith. So Mark Soule at Spartan Precision Rifles. 
That's great. I noticed uh, the wee bad bags and even the uh, chamber indicator, ELRHQ, you can find those products here at ELRHQ.com. So uh, it, it happens that Regina is one of our champions. As you know, if you've paid any attention at all at ELRHQ, we say uh, champion vetted gear, and that's because we choose champions like Regina to tell us what products that we need to carry on our store to make sure that one, everybody knows that somebody's using this equipment who really thinks it's the best and they're the, you know, some of the best shooters around. And two, we do videos for all of the equipment that we have and Regina will be doing some videos for us on the, some of the equipment that she uses. So you can go on to ELRHQ, watch one of these videos on the, the equipment that you're interested in and see why she uses it, um, you know, how she uses it and why she feels it's important that that's the bag that you need to choose. So uh, I thank you for doing that, Regina. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I want to get back to our conversation with Buzz just a little bit. You know, Buzz, you and I have been working on this semi-automatic 50 cal. Uh, people who have been around the McMillan family for a long time knows that this project started back in about 1993. Um, a guy named Ralph Diekman came to my father and said, you know, I think I can design a semi-automatic 50 and I think I can make it different than anyone else. And, um, you know, Ralph it was a, a really good guy and he worked really hard. But Ralph, Ralph was always in a situation where he had to try to make a living and we couldn't support him financially 100% while he was doing this. So it's taken a long time to get to where we are today. Uh, so we got to the point where the gun is functional and it shoots and we've actually shot it for accuracy and we know it's sub MOA, which is what we're really trying to achieve. It will be the very first sub MOA uh, semi-automatic 50 cal on the market. Now, I will be the first to tell you that's if you're shooting sub-MOA ammo. <laughs> and, and if you're shooting ball ammo, you're not going to get it. But I just want you to know that the gun's capable of it. And one of the things that makes this gun different than all the other semi-automatics is, is the barrel is screwed right into the breech. So it's like a bolt gun in the fact that it's screwed into a solid part of the receiver. And mm -hmm. What we have patented on this is the floating um, gas block. So we have a floating gas block that isn't fixed to the barrel so that it doesn't affect the, the shot as the bullet's exiting the barrel. So we think that that's uh, a couple of features that makes this gun extremely unique and why we can get the, uh, the um, accuracy out of it. From your point of view, you've seen this in drawings and you've looked at how it's designed. And, and I know up to this point, we've, able, we've been able to, you know, cut down the number of parts. And that's part of being able to make it, you know, manufacturable. Right. Talk a little bit about how you see the gun and, and what you think about it. Well, certainly you've got a, a wonderful foundation to start with at this point. And, and beyond that, exactly like you're saying, a very unique approach to, to a semi-auto rifle design. Um, that being said, you do, you do have a couple of, of options or opportunities to reduce part count. And maybe, um, you know, over, over the years of development, you know, from when this started as, as, a, as, a, as a project with Ralph and, and, and the others that you had on board at the time that, that you know, really from inception, um, there's been some technology advances. There's, there's certainly a lot of other opportunities for us to 
um, bring in some some later technologies, some refinements um, to help pull some of those part counts out. Because obviously, you know, parts break at, at some point. Things are going to break, right? And and the more parts you have, the the more opportunities for breaks to occur or for malfunctions to occur. And so, you know, f- from our approach, we want to streamline all of that as best we can, but still maintain the function of the gun as it's intended and still maintain that accuracy. So we're kind of going in, taking, you know, taking just a fresh look at how can we accomplish that? How can we accomplish the same thing, not really disrupt the the design that you have, but really refine that design, make it a little more manufacturable, a little easier for uh, for for the parts to be produced, for the parts to be assembled, um, and a little more robust for the end user, you know, to hold this thing and, and work with this thing and, and be able to, to modify it to their taste the way that, you know, we've, we've become accustomed to exactly like you were saying, Regina, you know, you, you've, you've built out custom, um, handholds for your, for, you know, positioning your hand just right. You've got a fully adjustable trigger, you know, things like that, where we can incorporate those types of cues into this design to really take it over the top. You know, uh, Buzz, one of the things that I think is is probably the best feature about this is that the way that this gun is designed, to scale it down to a, a 338, a 300 Win Mag, I don't know that we will ever try to compete on the 308 level, but those other guns, what a great concept to have the exact identical gun just scaled for each of those calibers. You know, in the military, they're using 300 Win Mags, 338s, they're looking for a 375 and we could do that very easily mm-hmm. um, and a 50 cal all in this basically the same gun so you only have to learn one system and you could have four different types of, of firearms at that i think that's one of the things that's going to make it absolutely and and you know you're starting with the hardest one you know you're starting with the most abusive one and if you get that right scaling down is so much easier than it is to try to take a smaller platform and scale up because as you scale up you're inducing way more stresses into the systems and you're running into a lot more headaches trying to be uh, successful with that so this approach is phenomenal for scaling down scaling in easily scaling into you know what are the calibers of tomorrow that we don't know about that the military might be interested in or whatnot there's a lot going on with with bullet development and you know the the military is really pushing for some advanced um, advanced ballistics and whatnot. And, uh, you know, for the most part, a lot of these rifles aren't posi- well positioned to, to easily adapt to some of these calibers. So I think this approach that you have is phenomenal for being able to, to be adaptable. Uh, okay. Um, thanks, Buzz. I'm going to take this time to say um, goodbye to all of our radio listeners. Thanks for joining us. It's been a great show. Uh, I plan on intending to continue this conversation for a little bit on Facebook. So if you want to continue to listen, switch over to Facebook and you'll be able to hear us finish up this conversation. Uh, You guys, it's going to be a beautiful weekend here in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm looking forward to having a couple of days off. I want you all to have a great weekend and uh, catch us next week um, on Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan on the voiceamerica.com network. Thanks for being here. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.